Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and your host for this show. And in this episode, we look at the question of how to begin. That is, what preparations are needed to begin the work of the symbolic life? It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Imaginatio is the active evocation of inner images, secundum naturum, an authentic feat of thought or ideation which does not spin aimless and groundless fantasies into the blue, does not, that is to say, just play with its objects, but tries to grasp the inner fact and portray them in images true to their nature. This activity is an opus, a work. The symbolic life begins with a shift in consciousness. I think this is an important question that is worth spending some time on. The question of how to begin. And we begin, as I said, by entering a different state of consciousness. We can't approach the symbolic life with the same attitude with which we meet the business of the day. It can't be just another item on our to-do list. From the practical life to the inner life is a passage, and we need to understand What is involved in this transition? You can't just flip the switch from one frame of mind to the other. Regardless of whether it is expressed through one's spiritual practice, through the work of psychological development, or in an artistic or creative pursuit, The symbolic life begins with a setting aside of our daily concerns and a tuning in to something else. And just what this something else is, is hard to put into words because it's a kind of subtle reality that is separate and different from our commonplace reality, and yet somehow seems to exist within and beside it at the same time. Jungian psychology gives this something else, the name the unconscious. But that name only helps us so much if we don't have a feel for the actual experience of this aspect of our psychological lives. 
Some, in trying to get at this experience, might refer to the depths and to speak of it as being deeper than ordinary awareness. Others may use the metaphor of height and call it a higher level of consciousness. Frequently, we think of it as being within, and so we talk of an inner life or of the interiority of things. And alternatively, we might experience it as beyond, something with an almost transcendent character. And very often, in some way that remains mysterious to us, we may sense it as having all of these different qualities simultaneously. But whatever this something is, it seems to be a universal experience, though it takes on different names depending on the school of thought describing it. In their own way, though, each school sees it as a living agency, something with its own autonomy and initiative. In general, it's understood that we come into relationship with it through a faculty other than the ego, other than the I. We cannot compel this agency through an act of will, nor can we produce its effects by our own powers. The spirit blows where it will. And the only thing that is in our control is to make ourselves ready to receive it when it visits. For this reason, it has always been traditionally understood that some preparations are necessary to bring about the state of consciousness that is able to perceive and to receive this dimension of being. For religion, of course, this is a divine agency, usually given the name God. Every tradition has a well-established set of techniques designed to help the seeker to enter into a state of readiness for the encounter with the divinity. Often this starts with the attention given to the elements of place and time. Usually, for instance, some kind of sacred space is set aside. This can take the form of entering a large and ornate cathedral, or it can simply be the laying down of a humble prayer mat. Either way, these prescribed areas form the boundaries that separate the hallowed ground, so to speak, from the world of ordinary life. Likewise, the time given to religious activity. This is given a sacred character through the performance of specific rituals that mark the beginnings and the endings of a time of observance, such as with an invocation and a benediction. In the creative arts, for example, in poetry, it's common to speak of inspiration and to refer figuratively to the muse. But for the ancient poets, the muse was not metaphor, but reality. They knew that they could write nothing of value without the gifts of the muses. 
As the great scholar of mythology Carl Karenyi notes, they believed that whatever they said was a repetition of what the muses had told them, and they gave the muses all the credit. And if we think about that idea, it means that the ancient poets saw their art as one of listening, of attending to and channeling a voice that was singing to them from a different and a distant realm. And so it is that so many of the great poems of antiquity begin with an invocation. Sing in me, O muse. When Jung, in our opening quote, speaks about imaginatio, he's referring to a similar shift in consciousness as in those examples that we've just been talking about. But here he's using the language and the imagery of alchemy. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the full range of Jung's writings, this reference to alchemy might seem surprising or even unusual. And at some point in the future, I'll probably do an episode that goes a little more in depth into Jung's studies of alchemy. But for now, I'll just point out that Jung found striking parallels between the symbolism of alchemy and that which was spontaneously produced in the dreams of modern men and women. He also found that the alchemists' descriptions of the many operations performed in their work, their great opus, mirrored the processes that occur in the work of psychotherapy. Imaginatio, says Jung, is the active evocation of inner images. And he goes on to state that this occurs secundum naturum that is, in accordance with nature. And what he means here is that the imaginatio is both an intentional act of the individual and, at the same time, a process belonging to nature, one that unfolds within the human being. It is, he says, an authentic feat of thought or ideation. And we have to be careful here when we talk about the act of the individual, and particularly with how we understand that phrase, an authentic feat of thought or ideation. This kind of thought that Jung is talking about here is one that happens spontaneously within us. It's not the kind of directed thinking we usually envision which is the working of the calculating or the logical mind. Remember, it is secundum naturum, a process in accordance with nature. And just as the earth puts forth plants and flowers, so the imagination puts forth its images. And in both cases, there are important tasks that a person can perform to assist what is emerging, but we do not make the living things themselves to appear. In both cases, the process can go on of itself without our intervention, 
though the results under such conditions may be more unruly and disordered. For the alchemists, the imaginatio was essential because it put them in a right relationship to their work. They understood it as seeing with the eyes of the spirit, and they recognized that it required a devotional attitude and a great deal of personal preparation. Here again is the religious attitude that we saw earlier in both the seeker and the poet. The imaginatio is a receptivity to something beyond the ego, to a realm of subtle realities that cannot be seen with the common eye. This faculty was sharply contrasted with what was called fantasia, the more or less deliberate production of unreal and insubstantial thoughts and images. As Jung puts it, imaginatio does not spin aimless and groundless fantasies into the blue, does not, that is to say, just play with its objects, but tries to grasp the inner facts and portray them in images true to their nature. This kind of seeing and the alteration of consciousness that goes with it is given a beautiful and quite fitting symbolic expression in a poem by Mary Oliver called The Swan. And it goes like this. Across the wide waters, something comes floating. A slim and delicate ship filled with white flowers, and it moves on its miraculous muscles as though time didn't exist, as though bringing such gifts to the dry shore was a happiness almost beyond bearing. And now it turns its dark eyes, it rearranges the clouds of its wings, it trails an elaborate webbed foot the color of charcoal. Soon it will be here. Oh, what shall I do when that poppy-colored beak rests in my hand? Said Mrs. Blake of the poet, I miss my husband's company. He is so often in paradise. Of course, the path to heaven doesn't lie down in flat miles. It's in the imagination with which you perceive this world and the gestures with which you honor it. Oh, what will I do? What will I say when those white wings touch the shore? The word that the poets of the Romantic era gave to that something else, that living agency that we've been talking about here, was imagination. Imagination, says Mary Oliver, with a nod to the spirit 
of William Blake. Imagination, she says, transforms everything. The path to heaven doesn't lie down in flat miles. It's in the imagination with which you perceive this world. Like the alchemists, the romantic poets found it necessary to distinguish between two levels of imaginative activity. The alchemists, as we saw, called these two levels imaginatio and fantasia. The romantics used very similar words, in their case, imagination and fancy. And their understanding of these two faculties was very close to the way they were understood in alchemy. Fancy was connected with memory. That is, it was seen as that faculty which plays with the familiar, with what's already known. It may rearrange these things in clever or unfamiliar ways, but ultimately it doesn't really produce anything new. Imagination, on the other hand, is an authentically creative faculty. As such, it's the source of all that is truly original. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was chiefly responsible for articulating these particular ideas of the Romantics, calls the imagination the living power and prime agent of all human perception. And he suggests that it's an echo on the human plane of the divine act of creation. In Mary Oliver's poem, this living power is embodied in the image of a swan gently making its way to the shore. We recognize this when the poem makes that startling jump and begins to speak of William Blake and his wife. Suddenly we see that this is, after all, a poem about the imagination. And as I suggested earlier, the swan is a very fitting symbol for this. For mythologically speaking, the swan is often associated with the arts and the life of the imagination. In Hinduism, for example, Saraswati, who is the goddess of music, art, wisdom, and learning, rides on a swan. The Greek god Apollo is also depicted as riding on a swan, sometimes while playing a musical instrument. Like Saraswati, Apollo is the god of music, poetry, and wisdom, among other things. The swan symbol also points to the energy of inspiration. Again, in the Greek tradition, we learn that swans were thought to be the birds of the muses, as they were considered the most musical of all the birds that fly. And in alchemy, swans were one example of what was known as the Avis Hermetis, the hermetic bird, which was a symbol of the Holy Spirit, which was said to be released through the work of the alchemical process. And all of this forms the symbolic background to Oliver's poem.
And with this in mind, we can begin to see that the narrator's attitude toward the swan in that poem has something to teach us about the proper attitude that we should take toward the experience of our own depths. Across the wide waters, something comes floating, something comes floating. It begins with a stance of waiting and watching. In the poem, the speaker's attention is focused somewhere in the distance, drawn by the subtle movement of something, something seen only faintly, not quite discerned, but slowly getting nearer, coming closer. And here is a helpful image for what Jung is pointing to when he writes about the evocation of inner images. To evoke means to call forth, right? But we shouldn't mistake this as meaning an act of producing images or experiences by one's own psychological exertions. Rather, it involves something like a gazing out over the waters, a suspending of the productive and efficient mind, and a waiting to see what floats in onto the field of our consciousness. And of course, this asks of us, even demands of us, that we access in ourselves the capacity to tolerate a condition of not knowing. And this is the takeaway. It's in that not knowing, that expectant waiting, that we invoke the imagination. All of this is part of the preparation we must make if we're going to be ready to experience that moment when something inside begins to shift and we enter the realm of subtle realities. That is the moment, we could say, when imagination begins to work within and through us. That is the moment when the swan, the bird of the muses, draws near. And when it does, we need to be ready to receive the gifts it carries with it, repeating, perhaps, with Mary Oliver. Oh, what will I do? What will I say when those white wings touch the shore? Now, just before we end, I want to let you know about a new feature that I'm adding to the podcast this season, which I'm calling Parting Words. Each episode after the final announcements, I'll close with one last quote that speaks to the theme of that episode. So please stick around, and I'll be back in about one minute with this week's Parting Words. 
You'll find a list of all the sources used in this week's episode in the show notes. You'll also find links to connect with me on social media, as well as for my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the production of this show. You can do so for as little as the cost of a cup of coffee at Buy Me a Coffee. You'll even find some extras for this show posted there from time to time. Just hit the support the show link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Now here are this week's parting words. This is a quote from Jung, from an essay titled The Aims of Psychotherapy. In this quote, Jung uses the terms creative imagination and fantasy interchangeably. Now, fantasy here is not to be understood in the same way that the Romantics used their word fancy. A good way to think of it is that fantasy for Jung is the activity of the creative imagination. It's a positive and vital function of the psyche. And here's what he says. All the works of man have their origin in creative imagination. What right, then, have we to disparage fantasy? In the normal course of things, fantasy does not easily go astray. It is too deep for that, and too closely bound up with the taproot of human and animal instinct. It has a surprising way of always coming out right in the end. The creative activity of imagination frees man from his bondage to the nothing but and raises him to the status of one who plays. As Schiller says, man is completely human only when he is at play. Until next time.